I think most of us know who uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines are. They're a married couple. They've got a wildly popular television show called Fixer Upper. They are also devoted Christians. Well, recently, and you may have seen this in the news, recently they announced publicly that they are pregnant with their fifth child, which of course is a great blessing. But, and this was a surprise to me, but they, they received a staggering amount of criticism over this, most of it on the internet. But uh, things like this, and I'm, I'm giving you, give you some direct quotes here. Enough with the kids already. Pretty, pretty blunt. Uh, you're only doing this to try to save your failing marriage. My, here's my favorite, or actually my least favorite. The earth is overpopulated already, and so you should abort that child to conserve the world's resources. I wish I were joking. Um, here's the interesting thing. Certainly from the Christian perspective, when God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, his primary command to them was be fruitful and multiply. Have children, grow, flourish, subdue the earth for God's glory. That's what God put us here to do. And so that kind of multiplication for Christians is a wonderful thing. It's actually a command. It's a, it's a blessing. But not everybody celebrates it the way we do, come to find out, especially when there are avenues to communicate it, like the Internet, where everybody gets a platform now for their own uh, viewpoints. But the, the, that view on multiplication for some people is a bad thing. We shouldn't be having more kids. Well, today we're going to talk about God's command to multiply, not childbearing, not physical multiplication today, but spiritual. We're going to talk about how our faith is meant to multiply. And here's why. See, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he spent uh, 40 days in his resurrected form. He spent 40 days with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended, the last thing that he left his disciples with and by extension, the command he gave to us was, in essence, he said, be fruitful and multiply. But he said it like this, because it's not about childbearing, it's about spiritual uh, faith and multiplication. Jesus said, this is from Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them, Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you forever. I'll be with you until I return for the fulfillment of this mission. That's called the Great Commission. And so Jesus says foundational to being his follower is the multiplication of faith. But it's also something that our culture does not appreciate. I don't know if you've discovered this to be true. It may not be as true, um, it may not be as blatant in central Mississippi as it is in other parts of our culture. But here's the, the resounding message that we will continue to hear, and I think it will increase even down here in the South. We live in a culture that mostly tolerates religious belief as long as you keep it to yourself. Okay? It's fine if you have faith beliefs. For some people, that's, that, that works for them. That's the culture's perspective. But just keep it private. Don't try to convert anybody. Don't try to tell anybody else how to live their life. Don't force your beliefs on anybody else. That's the prevailing cultural view of, uh, of our faith multiplication. The problem, of course, with that, uh, two problems for us, is that if we were to say, okay, Christian faith must be kept private, we have to first, we have to deny the central thing that makes us who we are. Uh, the Apostle Paul said of himself in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, 
What Paul is saying is, uh, my Christian faith is not a compartment of my life. It's not segmented off, and I dust it off and use it when it's appropriate for me. He says, no, it's everything. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. To say my faith has to be private is to deny that, that this is who I am. It's not a compartment. It's, it's central to me. And we also, of course, to keep our faith private, we have to deny what Jesus actually commanded us to do as a first importance, the thing he left us with, his mission, go and make disciples. You cannot do that in a vacuum. It's a public proclamation. It has to be made known. And so the cultural will continue to try to press that upon us. It's okay to believe, just keep it to yourself. And the Bible continues to pull that out of us. You can't keep it to yourself if you truly believe in Jesus. And so when we say a core value of Harvest Church is faith multiplies, that's not just a catchphrase. I hope, I hope it never becomes a catchphrase for us. It's our vitality as a church. I mean, really and truly, our ability as people to uh, grow and flourish in our faith depends on our diligence to share and spread our faith, to make sure that it multiplies. To our children, of course, that's primary but also to others, not our children only. The, 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 it's possible that we will, with a privatized notion of, of Christianity, we will all age out and leave this earth and have no wake behind us. We might leave money to our children. You might leave a building named after you, right? That's fine. But will you leave a spiritual wake? Will you leave people behind you who owe their faith to your influence? And see, if we don't, then, then our, our, the church, not just Harvest Church, but the church, loses its vitality. This is what Jesus left us here to do. And we get an incredible insight into this from Acts chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, the Bible on your phone, uh, we've got Bibles in the back if you need to grab one. Um, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts 8, now all of the book of Acts is the multiplication of faith, by the way, the whole book. But in Acts chapter 8, we get an interesting perspective on it because it comes right on the heels of a massive earth-shaking event. Acts chapter 7 tells the story of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen who was killed, unjustly murdered for his faith, for the proclamation of his faith in the gospel. And it's interesting that up to this point, up to Acts chapter 8, there had been relative peace for the early church. This radical message of a crucified Savior, and yet only minor little issues, seemingly, of persecution. But that's all about to change in Acts chapter 8. Stephen has just been unjustly murdered, and I want you to see what happens here. In Acts 8, look at verse 1, okay? We'll get to what Paul read in a moment, but look, in verse 1, um, there's a man named Saul who stood in hearty agreement over the killing of Stephen. That Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, if you read into Acts chapter 9. But it says in the middle of verse 1, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now consider for just a moment how powerful the Christian faith really is, how powerful the gospel is. That, that persecution finally came to Jerusalem, and when it came, it thundered. It did not come 
in uh, light and scattered momentary kind of glimpses, persecution came hard. And here we are. Stephen, one of the rocks of the early church, has been killed. And now they're going house to house, ripping people away from their families, throwing them into prison with no due process. It's a complete um, mockery of justice. But that's what's happening now to the church. And so the question for me, I look, I look over the shoulder of Luke as he writes this. I think, man, why, why are they not running scared? Why are they not running and hiding in the midst of this awful circumstance that they find themselves in? Because what the scripture actually says is they just scattered and went about preaching the word all the more. Philip went down to Samaria and starts preaching Christ to them. Aren't they scared? I mean, shouldn't their faith be shaken at this point? And the answer is no. Now, were they just better people than us? No, their fortitude in this moment is not a testimony to their own personal courage. It's the gospel that fueled this. Think Think about what they believed, what we believe, that fueled their perseverance here. That the Christian faith is established on a man who died for his enemies, who was unjustly killed for the sake of those who hung him on the cross. Father, forgive them, he said. He died for those who hated him. And then he rose from the grave to show that God had ultimate victory over death and, uh, and sin and that nothing could hold Jesus in the tomb. Okay, now to those who trust and follow him, the scripture says we, we carry with us the very same hope for glory. That though we may suffer for Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. That though we will face persecution in this life, We will experience his grace, not only here, but eternally, and we will be resurrected in the same way. We will share in that life with him, eternal glory in the presence of God, and therefore there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. In the scripture it says, what can man do to me? That's a fair question. If we really trust God and the eternal life that we have in Christ, then there's nothing that can be done. I mean, of course, somebody could kill us, but but then what? See, suffering, persecution, hardship can really take away just about everything in your life. It can take your health, it can take your wealth, it can take your status, your position, your reputation, it can take away your loved ones. So many things that we hold dear. But no amount of hardship can destroy what we've been given in Christ. That's the whole point. And so we see in Acts chapter 8 a people who when, when they were squeezed, when they were threatened, when they were being thrown into prison, the gospel spread all the more. We have a faith that no hardship can destroy. That's why, even as we speak today, uh, one of the fastest growing and most powerful movements of the faith and the church is happening in communist China, where it's illegal to be a Christian. That doesn't make any sense, because that's how powerful the gospel is. It doesn't have to make sense. It, it flourishes where sometimes the, the pressure is most severe, one of, the, uh, one of the ancient pagans, a man who hated Christianity, made a fascinating observation about the church. He said, the church, these Christians are like weeds. When you cut them, they just grow back stronger. That's what we are. And it's estimated that in China right now, there's more Christians than there are here in America, even though it's illegal to be one. Now, so let me just say, anytime I keep my faith private, anytime I hold it in, either for fear of my own reputation, for how people will see me, or maybe I'm fearful of hurting somebody's feelings or infringing on their feelings, I'm treating my faith in Christ as something flimsy, not strong, not powerful. 
I'm not abiding in what Acts chapter 8 tells me that my faith is. I've watered it down. I've been, in a sense, maybe because I'm not being persecuted, I've been lulled to sleep. And I don't see it as powerful. I see it as something flimsy. And so I hold it to myself. Y'all, our faith is powerful. We see it here. And hopefully we've experienced it too. It's powerful. It can't be held inside. Now, not only is it powerful, but it's also personal. Now, personal doesn't mean private. I'll show you what I mean when I say our faith is personal. Now, look down to what Paul read for us in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. We were introduced in verse 5 to a man named Philip. Philip went down to Samaria to preach Christ. Uh, The Samaritans there, many were converted and became disciples. And now something really interesting happens to Philip. This is a fairly well-known story. You may have heard it. Then in verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. Desert road, real quick. That means there's nobody on it. It's not frequently traveled. Philip may wonder, why are you sending me to a a desolated place? Okay, but here's why. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of all her treasure. He had come down to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up, sit with him, and the passage of Scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Now please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now full disclosure, I've never had God audibly tell me to go and do something quite like this. But I want you to notice, I want want to point out an interesting thing in this story. How God used a specific person to reach a specific person. He did not in this moment tell Philip to go and preach to a great crowd in a big city. He said, I want you to go to a deserted road, a place you might never travel ordinarily, or only you would travel just to get somewhere else. But on that road, you're going to meet one man, and I want you to share the gospel with that man. Now, is it possible that God is that precise in the way he deals with you and me? That God actually has precise plans, goals, intentions, purposes, for us, that life is not just a haphazard series of events. See, I think it's more than just possible. Uh, I'm a big believer that God has put you in the place where you live, in the place where you work or go to school, in the circle of influence you have, the friendships, the encounters, day by day that we have. Sometimes I just feel like I'm kind of making life up as I go, but that's not God's vantage point. That's not how God gives us direction. In fact, in Ephesians 2, Uh, The Apostle Paul, same Paul who was persecuting the church, he became a Christian. He wrote most of the New Testament, almost half of it, actually. He, uh, He says that we are God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That in any time we step into a day, a day of opportunity to know God more, to make Him known, we're only walking out what God has already set before us in advance. Isn't that amazing to think about? We're not making it up as we go. 
God is sovereign over our lives. And I, I think if I believed that more, maybe I would pray differently. I don't know how you're prone to pray. Um, I think a lot of us are just prone to pray, you know, God, give me a good day today. Make it a good day. You know, make good things happen to me today. Or whatever form of language we, we, we you know, kind of put that in. But if I really believed this, what's happening in Acts 8, if I really believe that God is this precise, I might actually start praying, God, show me the opportunities you have for me today. Show me the open door. Show me the people that you're going to intentionally lead me and give me opportunity to point to you today. I would think probably more outwardly than inwardly if I really started to believe what Paul or what God does for Philip if I believe that he could actually do that for me and not could, but that he actually does if I'm willing to listen and respond. God gives leadership to Philip here to achieve a specific purpose. But we see also Philip's response to God's leadership. That's the key for us. What does Philip do? He runs up to this chariot, a stranger, an, an important man, right? And maybe uh, 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 not, a, uh, not a person that Philip probably would ordinarily relate with and speak with. He runs up and says, what are you reading? Do you understand it? And then starting from that scripture, from Isaiah, uh, he takes that scripture and then he points this man to faith in Christ. He shows him the gospel. Um, Very, very simple what happens here. Very personal, very simple. And yet the truth is most, you know, fast forward to now, to today. Most Christians, I think, have never actually had somebody do this for them. (laughs) To take a Bible face-to-face, across a table, over coffee, or whatever it may be, and just very simply, very deliberately, show us who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what the implications of that are, what it means to know him and walk with him. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm I'm guessing that a lot of us in this room have never had that done for us. Now, we go to church, we sit under sermons, we maybe go to small group or Bible study or Sunday school, all wonderful things. But how many of us have ever been actually guided like this? Like what Philip does for this man, guided very simply and intentionally in the truth. I've been a, I've been a pastor for 12 years, and it's, honestly, it's pretty rare that I encounter people who have had this done for them in any meaningful way. I call it discipleship. Now, Philip didn't spend a whole lot of time with this man. If you continue to read the story, he gets whisked away. I don't know that he ever saw him again. But what he did for him was invaluable, not just in leading him to faith, but in showing him Christ through his word, um, most people that I encounter in church as a pastor have never had that done for them. Now, why is that such a problem? Why is it not enough to just sit under sermons? A little aside here, by the way. This breaks my heart as a preacher because I love to preach. People typically don't retain a lot of sermon, maybe 10 or 15%. I wish that weren't true because I I put my heart into it, you know. It's It's just human nature. It's the truth. And so if I depend on a pastor and his sermons to be my guide, I'm only retaining ultimately a very small amount of what's being said. And I shouldn't be depending on him anyway, right? I should be stoked to go to the Word myself or to find a guide who can take me through it. Now, here's why this is a problem. I'm going to give you all some statistics. I don't want you to get lost in, you know, I'm going to give you four numbers here. I don't want you to get lost in them or, you know, or pass them off. These are legitimate. Not all statistics are legitimate. These are. These are from George Barna. Um... Uh, it's going to paint a picture for us, I think, significant. 73% of Americans consider themselves Christian. 73%. That's pretty good. That's a strong majority, okay? However, only 31% of Americans report that they ever read the Bible at all. That's a strong minority, 
31% ever read the Bible. 55% of Americans believe that doing good works is what gets you into heaven. More than half of the people in our country believe that doing good things is what gets you to heaven. Okay? And then lastly, and I want you to think about this, only 17% of Christians, not Americans at large, 17% of Christians have what is called a biblical worldview. Uh, which means questions like this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe the Bible is true? Do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe that good works don't save you, but you have to have faith in Christ? Very, you know, very clear biblical truths. Only 17% of professing Christians hold to a worldview that believes those truths. And so what's happening here, and I don't want to get lost in the numbers, but what's happening here, it paints for me a very scary picture because it says on one hand that while a majority of people in our culture consider themselves Christians, the, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a vast minority that ever actually pick up the Bible and read it, and even fewer that seem to grasp the very central teaching of Christianity, which says you do not earn your way to heaven through good works, but you trust in Jesus Christ for his grace to save you. It's faith that saves and not works. We can't earn our way to heaven. Now, I'm not, I'm not demonizing these people. I, I feel sorry for them because I was once one of them, and I know what it's like to live in, in confusion and shallowness. And here's the truth. More than likely for most of them, they're not maliciously against true Christian teaching. They're just living out what they've been handed they're just living out what they've seen modeled for them or what they assume to be true based on a cultural perspective of faith or what they assume is true because their feelings tell them so. They're simply taking what has been replicated, what's been multiplied to them. And so if it was a faith that was shallow or ritualistic or moralistic or political or some, you know, some uh, you know, derivation of real faith that they adopted, that they saw, that they... Uh, saw in their church or saw in their parents or whatever else, then that's what they are living out. And with every generation, it gets more and more diluted. We're getting further away, not closer to. And so this, I don't have a statistic for this. This is only my opinion. But my belief is, foundationally, the gap here, the problem here, is in matter of discipleship. Right? Do we need more preachers, better preachers? Sure. But if you're only retaining 10% of that anyway... Don't we need guides? We need people who can do what Philip does for this Ethiopian man. And the, and the man who says to Philip, I love the, what, what the, 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 um, the obvious statement he makes. How can I understand unless someone guides me? But I wonder if any of us have ever made that statement, even just internally. How can I understand? How can I know Christ and walk with him unless somebody guides me? And that's a very real question. And yet most church-going Christians have never been guided We've never been shown how to study the Bible and why it's important. We've never, uh, we've never been asked to share the good news with somebody else and to step out there and to wear our faith publicly instead of just holding it in. We've never been stretched in that way by another person. And so I, I think many Christians prefer to keep our faith private because it is, for me, something that maybe is shallow or just compartmentalized. It's just a segment of my life. It's not really who I am. I don't stand on those convictions as fundamental to my, to, my, to my very being, and so why would I wear that out publicly? I'd rather keep it inside. I think there's a lot of people who, who are in that 73%. I'm, I'm a Christian, and yet it doesn't have a vibrant uh, outworking in my life. 
It's just stowed away in there somewhere. I heard a pastor on Friday say it like this. We get hollowed out. We walked an aisle, we prayed a prayer, we raised our hand, we filled out a card, we got baptized at summer camp. Something happened, and that something may have been completely legitimate, but we get hollowed out because we're not guided into the truth. We're not guided into a relationship with Jesus, and so we just rest upon what we think we see or know or assume, and we get hollowed out. And so it's, it's a shell of the reality. It's a shadow of the reality. Now, I thank God. Uh, I don't believe in luck, but if I did, I'd say I'm lucky. I, I've had men in my life who have guided me, who have helped me to see Christ and to know him through his word. Um, I'm, I'm the exception to the rule, and it has nothing to do with me. It's not to my credit. I didn't do anything. I just submitted to men who I saw were, that were more godly than me. One of them is a man named Butch Simmons. Butch ended up marrying Jennifer and me back in 2006. And um, Butch is a, a, lives in Starkville, great man, disciples men. As he sees that as his passion and his heart. And um, I can remember this. I can remember a day. I was, in the, I was with Butch in the student union at Mississippi State. I could take you back to exactly where I was, where he sat across a booth from me, and he very simply said, Kyle, tell me the gospel. Tell, I mean, just tell me what makes you a Christian. Simple question. And y'all, I absolutely embarrassed myself. I was about 20 years old, 21. I'd been a Christian for five years, I think, at that point. And I, but I just turned into Gomer Pyle in that moment. I mean, I completely fumbled that ball. I had no idea how to articulate even just kindergarten language. I couldn't tell him what made me a Christian. And I was sure it was true of me, but I couldn't say it. Now, what did, what did Butch do for me in that moment? I thought, well, he, he, I figured in that moment, I was so embarrassed, he's just going to draw an X on my forehead and cast me out of his presence, you know? No, he guided me. He loved me. He walked with me into the truth so that I would never make that mistake again, so that I wouldn't have to feel that embarrassed ever again. Not, not, not that it's about me and my embarrassment, but how can I say that I believe in something and I can't even speak it out in a sentence or two? And so Butch guided me, and I desperately needed that. And I, listen, I, I know for a, I can say it with full confidence, for a fact, I wouldn't be standing here right now if it wasn't for Butch Simmons. I know it. And God, God, was, God put him in my life as an instrument, just like Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. God put him in my life for that purpose. Um, our faith is personal. And you see how that's different from private. Our faith is meant to be lived out not for my own benefit merely, not for my quiet time only in the mornings. My faith is meant to be lived out person to person. It's meant to be multiplied, and it can't be multiplied only in theory. It's got to be, it's got to be done in the real stuff of life. We're meant to replicate what Jesus has done for us in the lives of others in a meaningful way. Otherwise, we'll pass on a shadow, a figment, an appearance that's not the real thing. And the statistics tell us that that's where our culture is right now. And it's scary. And it gets worse with every generation. God's called us to something better, something truer, that fulfills his purpose for us. Now look at how this story ends. Um, Philip has shared Jesus now through the scriptures with this man. And look at verse 36 now. Love this story. They went along the road and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look! Water! Mine has exclamation points. He was excited. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, if faith is a private matter, if it's just between me and Jesus, this story would have never happened. Most of the Bible would have never happened. We wouldn't have much to read. It's not a, it can't be a private matter, right? Philip, in that case, would have just kept on going. Now, now God, okay, I mean, I can't, I can't tell that guy what to believe. I can't, I can't tell him how to live his life. I can't tell him he's wrong about what he thinks. And Philip would have just kept on, would have, would have walked around the chariot, kept on going. No, but faith is not a private matter. And because it's not, we see in this story, we see the joy of salvation, the joy of new life and baptism, and we see Philip fulfilling what Jesus left him here on this earth to do. He said, you will be my witness, both here in Jerusalem, but all also to the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to make disciples in my name. Now, listen, all of us are being discipled right now, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. And this is the scary thing for me. All of us are being shaped in some direction. The question is, which direction? We see it in the statistics concerning our culture that we're being, we are being shaped just in the wrong direction. Further away from what the Scripture says. Further away from the true uh, heart of the Christian faith. What makes us who we are. We're falling further away from that. Not getting closer to. We're drifting away. And so you are being discipled. Which means your worldview, your priorities, your values, uh, those things are being shaped in, in many directions by many different factors. Okay? Media, people you look up to, um, people you look down on. Every, I mean, everything about life has a shaping influence on us. Every choice we make has a shaping influence on us. And so the question is, are we being discipled? Are we being guided? Are we being... Um, escorted somehow into what is true and right and good so that our faith might multiply? Or are we being hollowed out? And only you know the answer, perhaps, for that in your own heart. Um, but if we're being hollowed out, then we can't, we can't possibly do what Philip did or what Jesus called us to do. And therefore, we lose the vibrancy of the Christian life. Acts chapter 8 is a nice story, and that's all. It's not operational in my own heart. And so I want to, as we close here, I want to, um, here at Harvest Church, I want to get as practical as I can about how we do this, about what this means for us. Uh, I've got to wrestle with my own motives at times. I, this is not just me as a pastor. It's just me as a person, okay? So maybe you can relate to this. Would I rather have a, a person like me, or would I rather them love Jesus? Would I rather them like me, or would I rather them love Jesus? Okay. Uh, we maybe should ask ourselves that question. Uh, what's most important to me? That they would know and love Christ or that they would like me? Because here's the thing. Now, as a pastor, here's the truth. If, if my great goal is for y'all to like me, and I do want you to like me, I'll just tell you the truth. But if my great goal is for y'all to like me, then I'm going to do, Harvest Church is going to do whatever it takes to impress, to entertain, to coddle, to comfort we will never step on toes. We will never push and challenge. We will never do any of those things because then you might not like me. And I, I honestly, I struggle with that. I really do. It's just me. It's just it's part of my sin, okay? But why did God put us here? 
We exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus. Not disciples of me or of anybody else, but disciples of Christ. We're here to grow and multiply people who are growing deeper and deeper into relationship with Jesus, so deep that it can't help but spill over into the lives of others. It can't be held in. And so my hope, listen, when you leave a Harvest Church gathering, I used to do this uh, for years. Don't do this, okay? Don't rank the service when you leave church. Oh, y'all know what I mean. How was the sermon? Well, it wasn't very funny, you know, and it was Kyle, you know, that, do, you see, do you see when he spit, kind of, you know, and then, you know, and he stumbled over, you know, and I think he meant this when he really said that. Okay, fine, fine, okay. Don't rank the service. How, you know, did you like the songs we sang? No, I don't really like that song. It's, it's our nature to do that, okay, I get it. But I, when I hope that when we leave out of our gathering, anytime we gather together, in, in big church, in small groups, or whatever else, I hope that we leave saying this, how awesome is Jesus? How precious is his grace? How powerful is his word? Isn't he amazing? How great is it to be together, to worship him together as the fellowship of his people? So you can't rank that, and you shouldn't. That's just the precious gift that we've been given that allows us to be here in the first place. And my hope is that when we gather, we're not here to impress each other. We're not here to put on a face. We're not here to entertain. We're here to point one another to Christ. In Hebrews 10, it says, Gather together so that you may encourage one another, spur one another on, it says, to love and good works. The Christian life, we get to do that together. And my hope is that whenever we are together, that that's the prevailing thought. How wonderful is this? Not how good was it? How wonderful is our Savior? And so how do we do that? How do we get to that place more and more? Well, here's a principle that we believe in here. I'm going to get more specific. Um, we, there, are, there are different ways of doing church. I'm going to give you two ideas here, and maybe you'll, you, you'll resonate. Um, there's, a, there's such a thing as a church menu. Okay? And a church menu, here's what I mean. Uh, there are lots of programs and activities and events and options to choose from. And you can pick and choose. This happens on Wednesday night. This happens on Thursday morning. This, you know. And we do all these different things that give people places to fit, get plugged in, come serve. Here's a place for your kids. Here's a place for this and that, right? Um, and those are all good things, by the way. Everything on the menu is a good thing. Um, we don't believe that ultimately that's going to achieve our vision and purpose. Not a church menu. Here's the way I visualize it. I visualize a map. Because a map does not give us a lot of options to pick and choose from according to our affinities. What a map says is, here's where you are, but here's where you're going. Here's where you're going. And by God's grace, a church is not a scattered group of individuals with their own individual maps, but that we actually collectively get to go to a shared and common goal together. We're all going somewhere together. Right? You can't opt out of this if you want to go toward the goal, right? You can't choose another option, right? There's not varsity and JV. We say we're going to go somewhere together because that's where God has called us in his word to go. And so a map tells us where we're going and it gives us the direction there. It gives us simple and clear uh, direction to a common goal. Now here at Harvest, we do three primary things, okay? Our menu in that case is very limited. We do three primary things. We have our Sunday gathering. We're here right now. We have what we call small groups. 
which are co-ed, intergenerational. Anybody and everybody can be in a small group. Typically, we do those by communities so that you don't have to drive across town to be a part of the community group that you're in. Uh, we funnel our mission efforts, our local missions, through our small groups, if you're curious about that. But we have small groups. And then we have, thirdly, what we call discipleship groups or D-groups, which are same gender, smaller, typically three to five people, ideally, where there's deeper accountability, deeper study together, higher emphasis even on multiplication. Uh, and that's what we do. Now, that may not seem like much stuff, but I stand here convinced that we don't need more stuff to do. And I will tell you this, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I will tell you the, the conviction of my heart. We don't need more religious activities to keep us busy. Amen. We don't need more. Okay? There's enough out there, and it's all good. And how can you say no to it if it's all good? Where do you end? Where do you stop? What we need is a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ that we, by God's grace, get to do together, not alone. That's what we need. That's why the church is here that we might grow into deeper fellowship with Christ. And I don't think that's achieved by being busier, by having our hand in every possible thing. I think that potentially actually dilutes where we're going and what we're trying to see uh, occur in our lives and in our families and in our churches. And so I don't want us to be, more, uh, to be, to be busier. I want us to be more deliberate. And that's why we do so, things so simply here. Now, do we do it perfectly? No. My goodness, no. And, I, and we never will. But uh, as long as God would have us here, we're going to do it with a deliberate, uh, fiery passion. We're going to do what he's called us to do as a first importance. And maybe we'll start to see things like what Philip saw in Acts 8. Maybe we'll start to experience God's precise leading to specific people that he might make us guides to those who don't know him yet. And perhaps even in the course of, of your time at Harvest Church, you might be guided yourself. Maybe that's never really happened for you. And someone can come along and lead you as well. I'm going to give you, again, it's a, I'm going to give you a number, okay? But this is, I think this gives us perspective. Discipleship. Is discipleship really, I mean, just little bitty discipleship, does that really make a difference? If you were to disciple three people for a year, three people for one year, and after a year, you could promise that somehow that would multiply, that all three of those people would take three people, and they would disciple the three. They would do for three what you did for them. You would take three more, okay? And every year we would replicate that, okay? Just three people a year. In 23 years, we would have discipled the entire world. Check my math on that. I think it checks out. In 23 years. Most of us will still be alive in 23 years. It, and, and, and now, we can't guarantee that kind of multiplication. Not everybody's going to come to the gospel, right? But... Do we, do we, we recognize how simple this is. This is not a grand thing that only pastors and missionaries are equipped to do. It's not true that some of y'all have potential in this. You all have the potential to do this. It doesn't matter what your past is. You're not disqualified. It doesn't matter how much you think you know or don't know. Right? That's why God gives us guides, and that's why he calls us to be guides and to make disciples. Anybody can get in on this. This is what he's called us to do. Okay? And so we need deeper, transforming relationships with Jesus. There's a way that we do that at Harvest Church. It's on your communication card. If you have an interest in being in a group, please check that box and let us know. Because that is our mechanism to, to, to provide guidance and help and encouragement and to set you up for success in this. It ain't going to happen in here. I'm the only one talking. It doesn't happen in here. 
God has set us up for something personal that is powerful. We saw last week how God's grace transforms us, right? But it's not a grace that can be held in. If it's, if it's being held in, then it hasn't transformed me quite yet enough. It ripples outward. Like ripples on the water, it ripples outward. And let's pray. Let's pray that God would make the ripples count for his eternal purposes. You're going to have ripples. You're going to have something you pass on. The question is what? Is it going to reflect Acts 8? Is it going to reflect what God gave us as a first importance to do? Let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, we are branches on a vine. That's what you told us in John 15. We are not lone rangers separated out to do as we see fit. Father, we are connected in, tied in to the vine, and the vine is Jesus. The vine is what gives us life. Jesus is the one who makes us everything that we are. Everything that we are is from him. And and therefore, he said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, Father, would you give us the ability in this moment to grasp that truth? Apart from you, we can do nothing. We will pass something on, Father, but will it be anything worth giving away? Are we being shaped, Lord? Are we being guided into deeper fellowship with you, Lord? Are we being hollowed out? Father, um, make those questions really resonate in our hearts so that we don't continue to drift away from you, Lord, but that we, um, that we laser focus ourselves, our, our, our eyes, our lives on you and walk with you together, Lord, into your intended destination. All of us are called to this. None of us are disqualified from this. If the Spirit of God is within us, we can do this. And so, Father, I pray on one hand for those who have never been guided. Lord, would you, would you develop in us a sense of, um, of discontentment? I'm not going to live any longer without a guide, without someone who can point me to Christ in His Word. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And give us the courage to reach out and to ask, to write it down, to seek it out. But Lord, some of us in this room, maybe most of us even, have the ability to guide, have the ability to impart, to lead, to show. And maybe we, are not, uh, we're, we have not walked that out as we should. Father, convict us of that. That we, are, we, uh, we, we may be very busy, but Lord, we're never too busy for this. We're never, we're never exempt from this. This is why you put us on this earth. And so Lord, as parents to children, as grandparents to grandchildren, as friends to other friends, as neighbors to neighbors, as, as classmates to classmates. Personalize this for us. Let us see the power and the opportunity of making disciples, Father, even if it's very, for us very feeble at first. Let it be feeble. Let us stumble. That's okay. But don't, don't let us stay on the sideline here. Let's multiply what you've put in us, Father, for your glory and for the world's joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.